Hello, tennis fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Tennis Attic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Michael. How's everybody doing this week? Yeah, yep, it's uh, a great time to be uh, be a tennis fan. Uh, another great Wimbledon has come and gone. Uh, Roger Federer has been crowned champion of Wimbledon. So, <laughs> hey, 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 yeah, yeah, you know, no, 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 but, but seriously, um, that was my little impartialness yeah. before we start. That's all. You know, seriously though, it's a it's a big and hearty congrats to to Roger. Uh, but you know, I don't want to get into that too much because we gotta we gotta get to that uh, later in the podcast when we go in and recap the events uh, leading from the fourth round on and so on and so forth. But before we get into that, I want to get into a couple items on the news before I hand it off to Michael. He's going to be leading the podcast, but I do want to bring up a couple of things before. Uh, we start. Uh, number one is uh, next week we'll be taking a week off of the podcast. Uh, it's been a pretty big, I think, a week in, week out thing with us to, uh, give, I think, starting with the clay season all the way up through the French Open and then on through Wimbledon. So uh, I think we will be taking a week off to kind of recharge our batteries and then, of course, we'll be back and hopefully better than ever. Uh, next thing on the list is that there are two tennis movies that is going to be coming out in September. Uh, the first is called Borg McEnroe, and it stars super excited, yes, super excited. Stars uh, Shia LaBeouf as uh, John McEnroe, and um, sorry, I gotta bring up this guy's name because uh, it's uh, uh, I'm gonna try to pronounce this properly, but I'm probably gonna butcher it. Uh, Sverrir Gudensen as as Borg, and it premieres uh, September fifteenth. And then after that, <laughs> only a week after that, mind you, is the Battle of the Sexes, starring Emma Stone as Billie Jean King and uh, Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs, which premieres on September twenty second. Uh, these are two uh, really really excellent looking movies. I've watched the trailer the trailers for both movies. They look fantastic. Um, if you are a tennis fan, this is it's a really good time to be a tennis fan if you're looking for a movie that is, you know, so, like a part of like the history of tennis. Depicts some you know wonderful moment uh, that's really changed the game. And let's face it, Borg McEnroe changed, you know. Tennis with their rivalry and the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs changed tennis and it changed, I think, society to a, a large degree as well. So uh, two big movies. Uh, I would argue, of course, The Battle of the Sexes is a, the more high-profile movie uh, with the talent behind the camera, in front of the camera. But I think both movies really appear like they're going to be excellent. Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts on, on these movies? Uh, definitely... Um... The Battle of the Sexes movie, of course, is uh, definitely one of those movies that, um, like you said, it does have the slightly bigger cast, so we we might be able to see a little more about it. But um, definitely a monumental time in tennis and in in, in the history of uh, of people, really, um, as far as sports. Um, but honestly, in my opinion, I, I'm looking forward to the McEnroe uh, McEnroe and Borg because. It's it's a rivalry that sadly you and I didn't really get to live through mm-hmm. at all. Like we didn't get to live through any of that. We didn't get to be in those moments and and see that like we have with uh, you know of our time probably Federer and Nadal. 
uh, albeit two completely different people from Borg and, and McEnroe. So, um, you know, we've been able to experience it, but in a completely different way and with a completely different set of people. Um, but it's something that maybe it can give us a little bit of a, a glimpse, the smallest glimpse that we possibly could of, of one of the biggest rivalries in sports history. Uh, with, with McEnroe and Borg and possibly show us a little bit of the behind the scenes, um, that we may never have known about. Obviously, movie makers do a, uh, amazing job of researching things before they start, um, to do any movies and, and the research that even the actors and actresses do as well, um, to research what has gone on or what has previously happened to really depict these people. Uh, in the best of their abilities. Yeah. So, again, for both, though, I, I'm looking forward to both, and uh, I, I can't wait, especially for uh, for, for Borg and, and McEnroe. I, I remember when HBO did the uh, Fire and uh, Ice. McEnroe, Borg, Fire and Ice, uh, I jumped at that quickly and watched it, and I thought it was an amazing storytelling that they did about them. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the interviews and everything else that was done. So, um, definitely looking forward to both, though. Definitely, okay. definitely. Cool. Um, okay, uh, Mike, why don't you take over, uh, finish up the news here, and we can get going. Absolutely. So, um, obviously, we just finished up Wimbledon. Some of the storylines, you know, coming out of Wimbledon, um, the big story as far as, um, you know, details in the middle of the tournament, uh, right after we had our last podcast, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, losing. Uh, and after that, um, there were some things that he said afterwards, uh, one of them. He uh, said that he thought that it was a good idea to start looking at on-court coaching uh, via headsets, uh, which is, again, is via Bluetooth device or, or uh, you know, whatever it is you want to use. But um, your thoughts on that, Mike? I mean – Yeah. Uh, I am. And we, we also have notes from Eric that I'll read as well. Uh, Eric was not able to make it this week. Yes, yeah. But, but, I, I, uh, we did forget yeah. to mention that. Yeah, Eric uh, was planning on joining the podcast as usual, uh, but unfortunately there was a, a last-second um, thing. Change of plans that, that had to happen. It was a, a work <laughs> thing that really pulled him away. He wasn't happy about it, but uh, you know that's just the way it is, I guess, sometimes. And so he did send in thoughts, and so we'll share those as we go along in the podcast. So as for this, I am violently opposed to this in every possible way. I, I find this to be I, – I think this is – I think it's ridiculous. I, I've never been a fan of on-court coaching. I, I think the women's game has brought this on-court coaching thing on and I've never liked it. You know, tennis is an individual sport and when you're out there, you know, it, it does – really stink sometimes when you're out there and you're in the middle of a match and you're not playing well or the other player is playing really well and you can't seem to do anything to stop their momentum or to change the course of the match. And that stinks when that happens. But you also have to figure out a way to, to problem solve when you're out there. That's that's part of the game of tennis, whether you're a man or women, It doesn't really matter. And so the idea of of one of the the best players in history advocating for this kind of monumental and let's be frank about this this would be a monumental change to the men's game is just unbelievable to me like instead of instead of standing there in between points and and thinking hard or on the changeover racking your brain trying to come up with something 
you know, uh, to, to change the course of the match or to change momentum, you're now going to be what? Uh, speaking into your headset? I mean, that, that's ridiculous. I, I don't, I don't find that to be a, a good change for tennis. I, I think that would, that would seriously weaken the players because it wouldn't allow them to come up with their own solutions. It would, oh, I, I can't, I can't beat this person. Um, coach, what do I do next? Like, I don't want that. I don't want that in my tennis matches. I don't want that perverting the game of tennis. And I find it to be just a completely ridiculous notion. Uh, and I'm going to quit my rant here. Michael, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, well first uh, I'll, I'll bring up Eric's uh, thoughts on this first. Um, he pretty much agreed, doesn't want on-court coaching to ever happen. Um, his belief, and he, he summed it up very short and, and perfectly, uh, you should have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C if necessary. And if you go on to court and can't d- make those three things work, then you shouldn't be winning the match. Um, allowing coaching, to, uh, uh, he, he went into follow-up, uh, allowing coaching uh, is going to open the floodgates um, because this is what we do in sports nowadays. Uh, to, oh, well, who was the best coach of the year? And then they'll want to vote on that. Or who was the best coach uh, on the fly when somebody, you know, who who made the best coaching decision during a match that caused a match to drastically change in a big-time situation? Um, I mean, those were his thoughts, and, I, and I'll, you know, continue on with that. I think that uh, I agree with both of you. I think this is a horrible idea. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Mike, that the fact that, that Djokovic – in the position that he is in, is even bringing this up, is absolutely a, a joke. <laughs> that's that's funny to say, a joke. But um, I think that that is an absolute, absolute shame that he's even bringing this up. Uh, you know, for the most part, things have not been brought up a whole lot from time to time over time. But the fact is, at this point, you know, people need to realize that this this can't be an option. It really can't be an option at all. Um, and, and I don't think that anyone should look at it. I know that I've heard that, correct me if I'm wrong, that they're going to try this out on court coaching during men's and women's matches, I believe, uh, at the U.S. Open. There's talks of it this year. Um, I believe during uh, qualifying. It was either during qualifying or during the juniors. Uh, did you hear anything about that at all? Honestly, I, I, I haven't. Um, I'm not surprised honestly, by the fact that this is going to be tested out in some capacity. I just, I just, I, I, I'm almost, I'm almost speechless. I am too. I am too. I think it's an absolute, it's absolutely amazing that he would even bring that up. I'm so irritated with the, uh, with the idea that this could actually be a real possibility of becoming the norm in tennis. Um, you know, I'm. I mean, I hate. I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to go back to what I first said, which is, you know, tennis is an individual sport, and your mental strength and your ability to be innovative on the court, and to be malleable in your tactics, is the difference between people that win and lose. I mean, I understand that there's also, you know. You have to have the talent, obviously. You know, you have to have the athleticism and the talent and all that. Uh, but, you know, things being equal, it comes down to who makes the changes in strategy 
and shifts in momentum during the match. So the idea that that this could become the norm, where a player is just like sitting on the 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 side or on the on the changeover, and they're getting they're getting whooped out there, and uh, all of a sudden, coach is allowed to speak into his ear set for thirty seconds, and he's like, "Hey, do this, this, and this. I'm noticing this is happening when you hit this shot, and do this when this happens." You know that 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 is how the the strategy and the uh, the match shifts and changes is not due to the player's ingenuity and tactic changes, but due to the coach being the one to tell that person what to do. Like that, that is what that's that's tennis. That's gonna be tennis now. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, mm-hmm. like I've never liked it in the women's game. I think it's made women. I mean, I hate to say this, but I think it's made the women's game weaker. Because you don't see Serena out there calling for her coach, right? Do you see Serena out there? No, calling for I her mean, coach? you you, no. you see them looking at their coaches, and obviously on you know, look, you there's can't some do any coaching from the box. Yeah. But the fact is, um, I mean, we we've seen some impressive displays of where this has changed matches already. Mm-hmm. I think the perfect example, uh, and I mean, it's been shown many times in the media and on TV, uh, in ESPN's coverage that they've had of stuff was. Earlier this year, um, I don't remember if it was Miami or in Indian Wells, the discussion that um, Darren Cahill had with Simona Halep at the end of the first set of, of her one match, and I, I apologize for not remembering the specific match, but that he basically came out court on court and told her, like, this is your decision. Like, you need to make this decision. Are you going to really buckle down and fight, or are you just going to let it go? But you're the one that has to make the decision. And that was the first real open look that we've had of, of, a, of a true in-depth discussion with a player and a coach where the coach was literally telling them, look, this is on you. Even though he was on court coaching her, he still was like, this is all about you and your decision. Otherwise, I, I might as well take the racket and do it myself, like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the principle of coaching is – I'm telling you everything that I can tell you on what I think you should do, but it is still in your hands and in your racket to decide what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. It's still completely up to you. And again, I, I, I go back to what, you know, your beliefs and, and even Eric's that this, this is about the player, not the coach. And being able to bring on court coaching in. And obviously, if you're going to do it with via a headset, I mean, that just opens up so many things that could happen in this day and age with, with technology the way it is. You could have instances where people could start feeding stuff into their headsets that's not what the coach is saying. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many things that could happen. You know, hackers are all over the place anymore, and it's an electronic device, and you're talking about a live match. Could there be the possibility of somebody going, oh, well, you know, I have a family member of yours and I'm going to threaten you while you're on court to throw the match? Well, well, well there's – okay. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, I know this is but, really going far, but, but what I'm saying is it just opens up so many more things that could happen. Mm-hmm. That, that could happen during a match. And obviously with the headsets and Bluetooth devices, you'll have on-the-fly stuff. And to be honest, in my opinion – if I'm in the middle of a match, if somebody would be talking to me in my headset, I think it would be distracting. <laughs> I think it would be a distraction. It wouldn't allow me to focus on what I'm doing at that any point in time. I mean, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that part, but um, well, I just 
as a whole, yeah. I just think that it's a horrible idea, and the fact of coaching on court should not happen regardless of what situation, when it's happening, or how it's happening. It should not be happening at all. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to finish this up subject off, subject off Yeah, absolutely. Here. Absolutely. Uh, my only thoughts when it comes to other factors uh, is like if I'm speaking – if I'm a coach and I'm speaking to my player on the court – What's going to stop somebody from tapping into my signal, hearing what I'm saying, and relaying it you to the You see what I mean? That's, that's what I'm that's meaning. What, yeah, yeah, We're not even talking like about the the fact that just the idea of the on-court coaching is bad. There's also ways in which – I mean, okay, there's probably ways they could probably stop that from happening. But, you know, people are always changing and being innovative. And if they're going to – they want to get into that headset, they'll find a way to do it. And all of a sudden, they're feeding the other player the strategies that that coach is now. You know, it's just it's a big mess. It should. It'll even, happen. You know. You know. It, will. You know it, it will. shouldn't even be happening. That's all I'm saying. And I just hope that people come to their senses eventually, and they realize it's just a bad idea. So, uh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Probably let's, let's move on to. Uh, we have another Djokovic topic actually to bring up here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a Djokovic uh, laden podcast uh, to start this week, but um, so obviously we talked about Djokovic uh, withdrawing um, in in his match. Uh, he has cited um, that it was due to an elbow issue. Uh, he has uh, since uh, in 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 the post match con- uh, conference that he had, he stated that he's been dealing with this elbow issue for upwards of a year and a half. Um, which again, he didn't say specifics, but, you know, discussion that Mike and I had that that would put it somewhere around Australia at the beginning of last year when Djokovic was dominating the game. Um, but regardless, he has pointed out, um, that, that right now at this point that it's looking as though, um, that that surgery is definitely a possibility and that he could be out for a very long length of time. Um, he, there has been discussions uh, that he's also said that he may just take a hiatus from the game for a while. Um, but, I mean, that's that's the premises of the discussion here is that the, the, he may take a hiatus, whether that be to just recover or to have surgery to possibly correct. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you start off with that, Mike. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we don't like to see players injured, right? It's, it's never fun to see an injured player. So, of course... You know, when it comes to the injury to Djokovic, uh, you know, I think we can all agree. We just hope he gets better, because, you know, I I would I would rather I'd rather players be out on court, be healthy, and have them win or lose based on the merits of their play, and not because they're suffering from an injury. Um, so in that regard, I hope he gets better, and I hope he he does recover quickly, because injuries are not good and. You know, there's all tennis players are carrying around some small nicks and little injuries then that uh, just crop up all throughout the year. It's one thing to have a little thing. It's it's another thing to have a major issue like this, where surgery could be could be necessary. Um, you know, as for the the year and a half ish, uh, the year and a half thing with the shoulder. You know, I I kind of have to call um, as the Brits would say bollocks on this um, because like I said earlier you know we talked before we started the podcast that would put it around Australia I mean even if even if it was right after Australia you know he's you know Djokovic still went on to win the sunshine double last year 
And then he had a pretty good clay season. He won, I, be- I mean, I'm just saying, I don't I think, I believe it was Rome um, last year. I, um, and I think it was over Murray in the final. But, and then he went on to win the French Open, by the way. So, you know, the idea that, that he, he played for months and months with something this bad that would require surgery and he's been carrying this around for that long just seems a little convenient, I think, that that is now like, hey, look, um, all the troubles that I've been having, it's actually because of the shoulder. You know, that that's – I don't think that's the case. I, I think the struggles he's been dealing with have been coming from a different place and it's not been fit the physical. Now, yes, there was uh, there was a brief shoulder – I believe elbow or shoulder issue that, that popped up around the hardcore season this year, the spring hardcore season. And I know he and Murray both took off and they were out, I think, after Monte Carlo, I believe. Or no, I'm trying to think. No, no, I think, no, Djokovic came back from Monte Carlo, I believe. Um, anyway, but I, the point is, you know, the point is that I have a hard time believing that it's been a year and a half. Now, do I believe like maybe the last four, four or five months? Sure. And I, I think he injured his elbow or his shoulder. I think he had, he's had some arm issues this year. And I think they probably was, was fine for a good portion of the clay season. And at some point it flared back up and it definitely flared up in this match. That's my, the way I look at it because all, all throughout last year when he was losing in the second half of the year, people were like, are you hurt? Are you injured? He's like, no, 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 it's not physical. There's other stuff going on. That's the reason why. So could he have been lying? Sure. I'm not, like, I'm not saying that, that this year and a half thing is categorically 100% untrue. I just, I don't believe it. I don't think that it's true. I think that it's been a much more short-term thing. I think the stuff that's been going on with Djokovic has been more mental. I think there's been stuff going on in his personal life or something. Something's going on outside the court. It's not the body, at least up until recently. So anyway, uh, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I, I did do. I did check. Um, he won Madrid last year, and then he lost in the finals of Rome to Murray. Okay. It was one of the other. Um, I knew it was in, in the lead up, in the lead up to the French of of winning. Okay. So then to recap what you said. Um, so if he it was at the start of last season, if we say that um, he won Qatar, he won Australia, he won the Sunshine Double, uh, Indian Wells and Miami back to back. Uh, then, um, won Madrid, lost in the finals to Murray pretty handily, uh, and then won the French Open against Murray. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, so if we look at that just as a whole, um, and then obviously, um, he, he was, didn't really do a whole lot more the rest of the year until, uh, the U.S. Open where he lost to Stan in the final. So again, we're saying that, that he had this injury for year, year and a half. This is what he's saying. Not what we're saying. We're, we're saying that, but this is what he said specifically in the interview that he had post match uh, after the withdrawal. He said he's been dealing with it for nearly a year and a half. If that is the case, again, that puts us in this time frame when this was going on, when he was winning everything, just about, um, or where where he was solidly the top person in the world at that time. Um, now, obviously, we saw the struggles start. 
Um, I, I mean, I guess we could say that the struggle started somewhere around the Olympics. Would that be a, a good a good starting point, Mike? Would you agree? Well, I mean, I, Wimbledon, of course, losing Wimbledon. Well, Wimbledon, and then the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, but then he was able to get to the finals at the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where he lost to Stan in a very tough match. I mean, they, they both played well. Stan just basically out-muscled him. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, this does say, though, if he's having the elbow issue, playing a guy like Stan is something you do not want to do if you're having an elbow problem. Because Stan hits as hard as anybody on court, if not harder. <laughs> right. Um, but, but again, I, I am on the same sentiment um, that you are. That I don't possibly see how he could have dealt with this that long and been still having the results that he was having. Now, granted, after the U.S. Open, he did nothing pretty much the rest of the season as far as any results of any kind. He was in the year-end finals, but again, he was there because of what he did in the first half of the year. That wasn't because of the second half of the year. And he struggled there. He did not play his best there either. And Murray handily beat him in London, which then got Murray the number one ranking. But regardless, we go into this year. He has struggled from the get-go. And, and we really have not seen any positive play out of him. I, my opinion, I if, if it is an injury like this, okay, you've been playing with it with a year and a half. It's time to shut it down. If it's still bothering you after a year and a half... You've done treatment for it every week, which I do believe he said in the interview on a week-to-week basis that he's tried to get you know therapy on it and everything else. If it's gone on for a year and a half, it's not going to get fixed with therapy. That's not going to do it at this point. A year and a half's time, it's it's you're past that point. You know, if you have an injury for for a couple weeks and you do some therapy on it and it feels better, okay, fine, therapy's working. But a year and a half, I think, is pretty lengthy to say that you're using only therapy for a year and a half. I think it's time to shut it down, especially for the fact that he has struggled so much of this year. Like, you know you're not playing well. You know physically you're not well. If this is the case, then why didn't he shut it down sooner? Instead, he's played half the year injured, from what he's saying, and he's had subpar results. With a lot of the results that Djokovic has had, he might as well have not played at all. Because if he was worried about holding on to ranking and, and just completely t- taking himself off tour, then he hasn't done a whole lot better than that in a lot of instances. Now, again, he's still able to compete with the best, but he's not beating the best anymore right now. But again, um, I, in my opinion, if it is the elbow and it's truly gone on this long, it's time to shut it down. It's time to get surgery because therapy is not going to fix it. Maybe take some time off and rest it first and see if that helps. If just complete rest helps, we saw what it's done for for Federer and for Nadal to kind of revamp the body. Maybe it's time for him to look at that as well. But honestly, if it's been a year and a half, I'm thinking surgery is probably more likely at that point. Um, and, and I think that basically he he needs to he needs to make a very sound decision. And, and I think that time off is the best, um, in my opinion. Uh, I, I'll also throw in here, uh, you know, Eric's thoughts. Um, he said that he agrees that he he honestly believes that Djokovic should shut it down the rest of the year, very similar to what Federer and Nadal did last year, uh, and just completely shut it down. Uh, and he said whether that involves surgery, rehab, or therapy, he needs to look at these options because what's going on right now is not working. Um, he honestly also thinks that recharging his batteries by taking time off is is a very important thing as well. 
And there have been a little bit of, you know, notion that maybe Djokovic's motivation isn't there. Uh, and Eric said that, that in his opinion, motivation, a lot of people get motivation from watching from home. We've talked about a lot of players saying that they're coming back super uh, motivated. You know, Petra Kvitova, after, you know, her attack and injury, she came back super motivated. She said, you know, I didn't want this to be taken from me, but I also saw people playing and I want to be there. I want to be out there. And I think that's where Eric's coming from, that, that his motivation may come from, um, you know, having to work his way back to the top. And, you know, for somebody that doesn't have a whole lot of motivation, in my opinion, if I didn't have motivation, working my way back up the rankings, I think would be a perfect way to do that. To say that, you know, okay, I'm better now, I'm going to work my way back up through and, you know, get back to number one. Or, or you know, so be it, what, whatever your thoughts are on that. Uh, did you have any further thoughts on that, Mike? No, I think that pretty much sums everything up there. I think we've kind of beaten this this horse to death pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's it is what it is. We haven't talked a whole lot this year. I mean, we every week we've talked about how Djokovic has struggled, but as far as an actual discussion as to you know what needs to be done, what's the correctiveness, or the, what's the correction to to what his problem is, and I think the the unanimous decision at this point is. Take the time off and figure it out. Whether it's injury or not, take the time and figure it out because going out there on a week-to-week basis, whatever the problem is, isn't going to be fixed by just being out there. Uh, and I think you'd agree with me on that. Yeah, that agreed. That's that's not going to fix it. Uh, just going out there and struggling week-to-week, match-to-match, that's not the answer. No, agreed. Uh, Definitely agreed. But but regardless, um, hey, it's been, it's been somber at this point. Hey, Wimbledon just finished. The grass court season has finished, uh, you know, on a high note here. Um, for weeks, we have promised that we would discuss doubles a little bit. Fans, here it is. Uh, we're we're going to recap, um, start the Wimbledon recap here, and we're going to start it with uh, with doubles action. Um, I'll first start off with the women's final, albeit, um, Mike, you summed it up perfectly. Um, one of the shortest matches in Wimbledon history and the first double bagel to take place since 1953. Good bookwork, Mike, by the way. Um, Ekaterina Makarova and Elena Viznina. Uh, we obviously know that um, they should have had some contention with Safarova and Maddox Sands, but obviously we talked last week about Sands' horrific injury. Um, we, we probably could have expected the two, the two pairs to meet in the final. Uh, that didn't happen, uh, but credit to Makarova and Viznina. They took their... Number two ranking, which obviously um, they were the favorites uh, after Safarova and Sands did not end up playing. That uh, they took it six oh six over six oh six oh excuse me uh, over over. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this. Hyo Ching and Nicolescu uh, in the final. Um, admittedly, I did not see the final. Mike, did you see any of the final at all? I did not see the final live. Uh, I did watch the highlights of, of the match, if that was even necessary, I hate to say. Um, but I did watch the, the highlights uh, of the match, and the 6-0-6-0 essentially was done justice by the play on the court. Um, so. I mean, I'll, I'll just throw out a couple of quick numbers. Um, um, the, the team of Nicolescu and, uh, and Chan, um, they won 36% of their first serves and 38% of their second serves. Um, 
They only won 15 points from Vesnina and Makarova in the whole match, uh, and only 33 total points. Now, obviously, that seems low, but Makarova and Vesnina only won 59 points in the whole match. It's just a simple fact that Makarova and Vesnina won every important point, uh, converted six breaks of serve, um... But in saying Makarova and Viznita did face two break points, um, they just Chan and Nicolescu just couldn't convert. Um, I, I don't know what more to say on it. Uh, it was the, one of the most lopsided matches that that I can remember, especially being that Chan and Nicolescu were the ninth seeds. It wasn't that they were unseeded in a you know a team that didn't know what they were doing out there and just by luck got to the final. Um, I. Any other thoughts on that, Mike? I mean, it's it, it was it was just yeah, stunning to it, see. Um. <laughs> it was just uh, you know based on the highlights that I watched, it was a complete demolition, just like the score indicates. Um, and as you said, uh, fifty-five, uh, or as as you and I talked, fifty-five minutes. Yeah. For a final, right? And very fast. And it is it was quick. Um, you know, they, they obviously you know Nicolescu and, and Chang or Chang out there uh, tried their best. They really were were out there fighting and competing, so it's not like they just went out there, dropped the rackets in the court, walked off, and said, eh, hand them the trophy. They did try. It's just that they couldn't put anything together, not especially on a regular point-to-point basis, and, and really compete and, and win. You know, obviously, they didn't win a single game, so um, it was just a demolition ultimately in the could end. We, could, we, could we really just point it to the fact that Makarova and Viznina were completely on point? And they were not. Well, you got to remember something. Yeah, they were, but you got to remember something. Makarova and, and company were they're, they're Grand Slam champions. They've won three Grand Slams, so they've been in this situation before. They have the benefit. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, other than than Safarova and Maddox Sands, they were the favorites, other than them, yeah. to win the title. Right. And and like I said, the fact that that obviously because of Sands' injury, that made them a huge favorite. I mean, you, we expected them to probably reach the final. Uh, regardless of, of what happened uh, on the other side of the draw, but I mean, I, I just, I just still can't believe that, that they didn't lose a game. Complete demolition, as you said. Yeah, credit to um, them for not letting for not letting the situation get to their head and, and maybe have it drop their level a bit. They just they had to have thought they were overwhelming favorites. They had to oh, think they were that. definitely confident, but you don't go in thinking we're gonna we're gonna double bagel anybody. They they went into the match, they fought hard. But when the other team isn't playing that great, or you're not letting them play that great, I guess it kind of goes hand in hand. Sometimes your your level will drop because yeah. you you yeah. Can see the level on the other side is so low that it kind of throws you off of your rhythm and your game, and you you, know, you might make a few mistakes and give a, a game or two away. Uh, but credit to them for not letting that happen. They just kept pushing forward, pushing forward, and next thing you know, match is over in less than an hour. So yep, that's that's all I have. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, Eric didn't have any specific thoughts on it other than pretty much what we said. Um, but it just, it's very shocking. Yeah. Very shocking, but credit to Makarova and Vizina. I agree with you that uh, impressive display by them and the fact that they were overwhelming favorites and they capitalized on it and, and they showed truly that they were the favorites for that match. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll continue forward. Um I'll actually move around a little bit here. Um, something for the Brits to look out for. Uh, they After the men's final, they got a treat. 
two British players in the mixed doubles final. Uh, we had Jamie Murray uh, teaming with Martina Hingis. Obviously, we know Hingis, one of the greatest doubles players ever as well, uh, against Henrik Kontinen and Heather Watson, another Brit. Uh, obviously the fans got traded there, um, with, with Murray and Conta not making it through, uh, through the final, which we'll go over here in a little bit. Uh, but Murray and Hingis capitalizing as they, again, in this same situation, were probably overwhelming favorites, really, uh, as they were the number one seeds, uh, in the mixed. Uh, not surprising when I saw the matchup that, that Murray and Hingis ended up winning 6-4, 6-4. Um, but here's an interesting stat for you, Mike. The double bagel lasted 55 minutes, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Murray Hingis beat Continent and Watson 6-4, 6-4 in an hour and 10 minutes. So 16 minutes more. Hmm. That's kind of a, a weird contrast that you could have a double bagel in 55 minutes, but in a mixed doubles match, you have a 6-4, 6-4. So you're talking eight more games played in only 16 minutes. It's just it's just odd that that the match it seemingly lasted longer, but yet the timeline really didn't last that much more. Um, if you think about it, uh, your your thoughts on that match? Did you see any of it? Uh, yeah, I did watch some of the match. Uh, I couldn't watch all of it. I watched the first set and I think the game in this first game and the second set. Um, and, and Murray and Hingis. Looked obviously like the better team from the outset. Now it's six four six four score. So, you know, while it was a straight sets win, obviously it wasn't like they were demolished. But they won the points that mattered most. There was there were a couple of really important points, especially in that first set, and they managed to uh, they managed to win the points obviously and uh, took control of the match uh, just by winning that first set. When they won that first set, I knew they were going to win the match. Uh, that being said, credit to Watson uh, and Continent on the other side because they could have just given up. They could have let the steam come out and just you know limp to the finish line, but they didn't. They fought hard and they at least made you know Murray and Hingis actually work for it. Yeah, I mean relatively, it was a close match. Um, Hingis and Murray converted three out of their five break chances, which obviously is a good conversion. Uh, but Constant and Watson had six opportunities to break. They did convert one. Uh, but the disparity, there's only eight points more for Hingis and Murray than there was uh, for Constant and Watson. Uh, overall, a close match, really, uh, in all intents and purposes. 6-4, six, 6-4, four, six, four, only a break separating the two. The statistics were very close. Uh, the biggest discrepancy between the two, Constant and Watson struggled on their second serves, winning only 47%. Uh, that's the only thing that jumped out of me stat-wise that was a it was a big dis- disparity between the two, uh, that Watson and Continent struggled on second serve, which equated um, basically to probably more than likely the breaks of serve that took place. Um, but again, uh, perfect thing for the, for the British fans that they get to see the mixed doubles match with two Brits playing uh, in the very last match of the tournament uh, as that followed the men's final. Um, any, any final thoughts on that at all, Mike? Uh, nope, I think I'm, that's pretty good. Okay. Yep. All right, so uh, then we'll go to the, what could be considered the match of the tournament, legitimately. Mm-hmm. Probably not, but ma- but legitimately could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucas Kubot and uh, Marcelo Mello um, pulling off an amazing 13-11 fifth set victory in the final. Um, 
over uh, Olivier, Olivier Marich and Mate Pavic uh, in the final. 13-11, 4 hours and 39 minutes um, in an amazing display of doubles. And from what I can see, I did not see the entire match, but one of the best displays of doubles tennis I've seen in a long time. Uh, would you agree, Mike? Uh, definitely. Yeah, this was an insane match. Uh, I didn't get to watch the entire thing because it was a really long match. And uh, I just I, – I had things to do. I could not watch the entire thing. But I did watch uh, the first see, two sets in change. And, and I saw and I saw the third set tiebreak and the fourth and fifth set. Okay, so you so, watched the second half. I so the first you watched half. the okay. first half and I watched the second half. So, so by all means, you it know. was a. I mean, the first the, what I got to see the first two and change um, was an insane you know level of tennis. It was just it was really really good all throughout. It, the intensity was there from both sides all the time. Never really felt like anybody was was taking points off or. Um, you know, mentally just wasn't weren't present. It just happened to be that there were specific swings and momentum at specific times, which allowed one or the other team to you know gain the upper hand in whatever set they were in. And of, of course, it just happened to work out that you know it won five sets. But from what I saw, it was an insane display of tennis. And and you know you got to give credit to um, Mate and and his partner um, because. You know they were they were pretty big underdogs in this match because they weren't even I believe they weren't even seated if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't believe that they I don't were. believe they were seated and um, you know they really fought hard. In fact, they played a five setter, I believe, prior to the to uh, the final. Um, if I'm not uh, Marich and Pavic were the last seed. They were the 16th. Okay, seed. they were 16th seed. Okay, so they just they just got so in. So they just got in. That. But I think they played a five setter prior to the final as well. Uh, yes, in a match that could cl- technically be classified as a bigger match than that than the final. 17-15 in the fifth set, they beat Medic and Scooger. Mm-hmm. So uh, the two Croats and yeah. in Tukubat and Melos, uh, they won nine seven in the fifth over the number one seeds Continent and, and Piers. Mm-hmm. In the semi, so both teams played very long, tough matches. Obviously, uh, Marich and Pavic uh, played a much tougher seventeen fifteen, the fifth set, um, than than Kubot and Melo did. But obviously, both teams coming in not necessarily feeling their freshest. I would say yeah. at that point. But they went out and they 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 just they just threw everything they could against the wall, and you know it. One team was an amazing gonna, doubles draw. Yeah. I mean, it, it was great. It was great play. Yeah. Uh, well, one team impressed. was going to win and one team was going to lose, and that's just the unfortunate aspect is that both teams really deserve to walk out <laughs> with that trophy. So yeah, yeah, I agree. The the effort that those guys put in, even for both teams in the semifinal and the final, um, I, I agree. This was one of those instances where it was sad that somebody had to lose. Um, I'll bring up that at the end. Um, there was talk um, because of darkness that they were they were going to have to stop the match. Um, they, I believe, stopped the match at 11-11 in the fifth set. And then they closed the center court roof and then started play back up about 10, minute, 10 to 15 minutes later. Um, and credit to Kubob and Mello, they were ready to go. Uh, they immediately, um, you know, put their foot on the pedal and, and literally... <laughs> in figurative terms, ran away with it um, right off the bat um, in that last game. So 
just credit to them. I mean, honestly, credit to them that uh, they were ready to go. Uh, they came out. They held um, pretty easily, and then they literally broke. They broke Marich and, and Pavic at love to win the match. Uh, after the delay, it looked like Marich and Pavic didn't have anything left, which is understandable. Um, I know, I know myself, uh, Mike, you could probably agree that for any of the tennis players out there, even if you got to sit down after playing that long of a match, you're not really going to feel like getting back up to play. And that's why I say credit to Kubot and Mello that they were, they were ready to go and they seized that opportunity after that, that short break that they came out and basically just, just took it, literally took the match into their hands and, and ended it quick. Um, any any last thoughts on uh, on an amazing doubles finish? Just late into the night. <laughs> yeah, just uh, a great a great effort by both teams. And like I said, it's a shame that anybody actually actually had to walk away without the trophy, given you know what we saw in this match, this display of tennis. It's just the last couple of matches from both teams, the way they both got it out five setters and then went into the final and played another super long five setter when they probably didn't have. Uh, a whole lot left in the tank, but hey, it's Wimbledon. You're going to throw everything out there to win it, and they did. It's just unfortunate that somebody had to walk off that court as a loser. But uh, otherwise, you know, it's just a great effort by them, and, and congrats. Absolutely. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right into the uh, the singles. We're gonna start with the ladies singles in our recap uh, this week. We had led up uh, to the fourth round when we did our previews our, our review last week. Um, so right into it this week, uh, I'm basically going to recap uh, the ladies' draw uh, from the fourth round on and the, the results that happened. Um, we had Muguruza beating world number one Angelique Kerber um, in a match that I actually give a little bit of credit to Kerber. She looked as though she was really wanting that match. Um, and something that you and I have talked about uh, and Eric has for weeks now that Kerber really didn't show a whole lot uh, in, in, in the last several months. Uh, and it never really seemed super interested and just struggled. She actually showed me a little something in that match, and I know this is a quick recap of the scores, but I just wanted to point out that, that credit to Kerber for showing some fight that we haven't seen from her in several months, uh, if not even into the last year. I think you would agree uh, on that that sentiment. Uh, did, did you see any of that match, and did you feel that same way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously we talked about the, the Kerber match in the previous round um, against, uh, uh, what's her name, the American... Um, uh, uh, Shelby Rogers. Shelby Rogers, when, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, Shelby should have won that match. But through a combination of getting tight and Kerber... Uh, starting to show some of that grit and fight and determination that has been the hallmark of the last couple of years, I believe, really. Uh, yeah. Definitely last year. Uh, but the last couple of years of her career, and, uh, you know, we started to see some of that. In this match against, uh, you know, Muguruza, she she lost, but, you know, she's it feels like she's now starting to gain a little traction Finally, she she just know. looked like she really wanted it, which is something that I honestly didn't feel like we've seen out of her for a while. Yeah, and you know she she gutted out that first set. Muguruza looked a little tentative in that first set, um, but even as Muguruza was really you know trouncing through the second and third sets with Kerber, there was fight. You could see that she was literally still giving everything she had 
to stay in that match and, and kept it close with the six four six four second and third set. Um, yeah, just just credit to Kerber that that she she's showing that she really wanted it, and that's again something as a tennis fan I felt that we had been missing, and something that we should never not see from a world number one. Um, but I'll continue on here. Um, so we had we had Muguruza beating Kerber. Uh, we had Kuznetsova over Radwanska. Pretty straightforward, 6-2-6-4. Uh, uh continued her impressive run uh, here at Wimbledon, winning her third round or her, her match in three sets, uh, 6-3 in the third. Coco Vandeweghe uh, in a pretty close match, beating Caroline Wozniacki, 7-6-6-4. Uh, we had Venus Williams getting through uh, Conja, 6-3-6-2. We had Ostapenko with... I want to say a surprise upset over Svitolina, but I guess, hey, Ostapenko's won a Grand Slam and Svitolina hasn't, so maybe it shouldn't be classified as upset. Uh, but Ostapenko winning in 6-3-7-6. Uh, Conta in a tough match that she had with Caroline Garcia coming out 6-4 in the third. Uh, and Simona Halep showing uh, good form in beating Victoria Azarenka 7-6-6-2. Um, our quarterfinal matchups, we had Muguruza defeating Kuznetsova pretty straightforward, 6-3, 6-4. Um, and another surprise, Roberta Kova really dismantled Coco Vandeweghe, 6-3, 6-3. Uh, Venus Williams got through Ostapenko very unscathed, surprisingly, in my opinion. I thought that would have been a tougher match, uh, 6-3, 7-5. And then we had Joanna Conta and another tough match for Conta beating Halep 6-4 in the third um, probably on the women's side, Mike, would you classify that as probably the match of the tournament? Yeah, but on the women's side, yeah, both, between Conta and Halep, both players were playing at a exceptionally high level. Um, and credit to Halep for bouncing back from you know the French Open loss, which for a lot of players uh, would demoralize them. And players, I've I've seen so many players that'll suffer. Uh, a defeat like that and they'll they'll lose in like the first or second round and she yeah. didn't so credit to her for coming in here ready for a fight uh, the whole tournament really and she looked yeah. shit great all tournament and uh, honestly as you can see from the score it really just came down to a few points uh, Conta just happened to to just make a few more shots when she needed to that really is the only difference it really it really could have been a Halep going up against Venus um, yeah yeah I mean um it was a very close match through and through. Uh, just quick stat line, two points separated the two players. Conta won two more points than Halep did in the entire match. That that says it right there. Um, again, winning 6-4 in the third uh, to Conta. But um, the, the two tough three-setters, I think, had a factor in Conta then losing to Venus Williams in a fairly lopsided match. I think you would agree that Conta didn't have a whole lot left for that Williams match. Uh, Williams winning 6-4, 6-2. Um, pretty straightforward. I, I think you would agree that Conta's legs were pretty much gone going into that match, although she was definitely out there fighting hard. Yeah, I mean, look, um, she she yeah. went out there and did the best she could. You're in front of the, the hometown crowd. You're fighting to get into the Wimbledon final. You're going you're gonna to put everything out there that you have. The problem is I think, I think that Hallett match took so much out of her that – and considering how well Venus is playing, I just don't think she had that extra, you know, ten to fifteen percent that she needed out there on court that day to beat her. Because and justifiably, yeah. Venus yeah. was playing very well yeah. uh in that semifinal. And even in the, the quarterfinal against Ostapenko, Venus 
honestly, uh, from the fourth round on, uh, obviously Venus made the final. Um, she beat Conta there and got to the final. Honestly, I, I looked at Venus as an overwhelming favorite from that fourth round match on. I mean, she was dominating. Um, but credit to, uh, uh, you know, we can't discredit Muguruza. Um, obviously, we're getting back to her. Um, destroyed Riberakova, and I think that Riberakova was completely overwhelmed uh, by being on center court in in the semifinal. Muguruza absolutely crushed her 6-1, 6-1. To be honest, I the way that match went, I honestly was expecting the double bagel there, uh, because Ryberakova was never in that match in any instance. Uh, did you see any of that match? And would you agree that that it never looked like she was even part of that match? It was all Muguruza all the time. Right. I, I watched it. I watched it from start to finish, um, and I did get to the later stages. I did think about just turning it off, or you know, finding. I, I was the same way. I mean, it, I, I, it, it I looked like she had no chance out there. Yeah, it was I just you know, it, right? Yeah, Rybarakova. It's uh, she's had a great run of great form, run, great run. But it was uh, the situation. I think was just too overwhelming for her. I think she went out. There was like a deer in headlights kind of situation where you could tell she wanted it, but almost like she wanted it too much. So much so that it literally froze her out on court like she was so jacked up i think that she was just it, it just froze her throughout the match she would she would stand there sometimes and not really make that that like run and stretch out to grab you know hit that last ball you know it was, it was like she would watch balls sail by her and it was like why don't you move for these balls it's still because she was tired i think she was just she was just like stunned i think she was just froze like a deer in headlights the situation was just too big for her i think at least, I think so, yeah. and, 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 gr- and granted, though, Muguruza was absolutely just literally crushing everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gave Ryberakova no chance to gain any traction in this match either. Not that, not that again, Ryberakova played that well, um, but Muguruza just from the get-go absolutely was dominating every point. Um, it was it was her decision, and, and again, the stats showed it. It was her decision what happened during that match. Um, Ryberakova did try to come into net a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but I mean, every time she came into net, Muguruza either was passing her or hitting the ball through her. And, and, and again, I think that that was Ryberakova's initial thoughts, I think was to try to come into net maybe, but it, 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 there was no opportunities to be had in doing so. Um, but again, uh, that gets us to the final. Obviously, uh, Serena Williams uh, and, and Garbina Muguruza in the final. Um, a, a match that I think we, we all expected a lot out of uh, as both players were playing extremely well going in. Um, and I, I think that you and I discussed this a little bit prior uh, to the match. And before I, I get into it, I'll, I'll bring in Eric's thoughts. But you and I discussed that, that we, we had similar but slightly different views on, on what we thought happened. Um, in, in there, um, Eric, uh, due to work, did not get to see the whole match. Uh, he only saw a little bit of it. Uh, what he did see, he, his opinion, he thought that, that Venus kind of wilted after that first set. Um, but again, he said all credit to Muguruza. Um, obviously she's had a little bit of success on the grass, but it wasn't necessarily like she was an overwhelming favorite going into that final. I think we all still had Venus as the favorite at the beginning of that match. Um, but the fact is, uh, you know, in his thoughts, it's awesome that she had that kind of success uh, on the grass. 
and he hopes that she can kind of parlay that into, um, you know, showing that she wasn't that true, what, what they call one slam wonder. Uh, you know, she's got a second title now and hopefully she can push through and, and get a few more and really cement herself as, is a great player, uh, in the history of the game. Um, Mike, I'm going to let you, uh, give your thoughts on the final first, um, and, you know, our little discussions that we had about the match. Uh, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, you know, to start out the match, both players were tentative. You could tell, uh, both players were kind of making some unforced errors, especially uh, um, Muguruza. She was she was really spraying balls uh, right from the get go. Probably the first two or three games, she looked very uncomfortable out there. She did. She kind of had that Ryberakova deer in the headlights kind of look. Uh, and she's been to the Wimbledon final, having come here two years ago. She lost to Serena. Uh, so sometimes, I've, you know, like I said, with Robert Co, I think she wanted it so much that uh, she was so jacked that she couldn't settle down. She couldn't calm down. And I think for the first few games, I think Muguruza was the same way. She just couldn't calm herself down and just play. And uh, But eventually she did. Uh, she started sa- she started saving break points in the first set. There were, especially at the tail end, there were some really, really big points. There were a couple, I think, two break points. There was also... Well, not even counting the set points. There was two break points I believe she saved in one of the latter games. And then um, Venus was serving for the match. Okay. Uh, you mean the I'm set? Sorry. You mean I'm the sorry, set. the set. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, or no. Um, yeah, no, she Muga, was serving no, for the set. Or- no, Muguruza, no, Muguruza was serving to stay in the set. And Venus had two break point chances or two uh, set, set chances – uh, set point chances, which she failed to capitalize on, and Muguruza was able to just claw out that that game, and uh, I think she made it. She made it five all, and then she broke Venus, and then you know she served to uh, take the first set. Now, for me, the way I looked at it, the first game in the next set, in the set two, was a real hard fought set. Now, I'm only in my head. Thinking about how the, the, the points played out and how the game played out. So I'm not saying this is 100% correct, but if I remember correctly, I believe that Venus got up, it was like 40-15, I believe, on her serve. Yes, and then I do believe you're correct. Muguruza came back to make it deuce, and then it was kind of a hard-fought battle back and forth. I think Venus had a chance to, to serve for the game and then I think went back to Deuce and then Muguruza. Eventually though Muguruza was able to break Venus and then Muguruza held to make it 2-0 and to me it looked like after she held the the wind just was knocked out of Venus's sails. I, I, I mean I was saying because to me her effort didn't look the same. Yes, Venus uh, was playing better. There's no doubt about that. But Venus was starting to spray balls, balls that were routine rally balls, literally standing on the court, just standing there, not even having to move. And she was she there was like two or three balls in particular where I know she had to hit at least five feet out, and they were not balls she was chasing down, you know, or low percentage shots. These were just standard balls, like shots you would make just by hitting, you know, in practice. And to me, I could tell by her body language, she was already down. Like she was so, she was so down in this match already having lost that set knowing full well, she should have won that set. 
and having already lost Breaker's serve, I think – I hate to say it, but it felt like she was like, I'm ready to go home. And I hate to say that, but it really felt that way. I just – I think that given everything that, that she's been through in the last couple of weeks, and I know that the charges were dropped – uh, at least right now with the whole issue with, with the car accident. But I honestly believe that given everything that's happened, I feel like having lost that her serve in the second set, I almost felt like for her it was like the writing's on the wall. I can't beat her right now. I just don't have anything left mentally. I'm fried. I just want to go home. And it's what it felt like to me. But that's just me. And I'm not saying that's correct. It's just what I felt like I saw as the match was progressing. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I did do a little bit of research here and go back, and, and Williams double-faulted to give that first game of the second set away. Uh, and you were correct. It was a back-and-forth uh, for several points before Venus double-faulted that game away. Um, but I agree with you. I think that both players came out very tentative right off the bat, um, and I definitely feel that Muguruza was feeling the, the, the situation, the the occasion, much more than Venus was out of the gate. I think that um, I think Venus might have been overplaying just a little bit right out of the gate um, in the hopes because I think, in my opinion, Venus looked at it as she had to come out fast out of the gate. And, you know, Venus is a notoriously fast starter, at least in my opinion. Um, and I think that in her opinion, she had to get out there and she had to get the lead early. She wasn't able to do that. Um, and in the situation then... As it got to the back half of the set, um, I, I I did do a little bit more research as well uh, as what you said then with that first set um, that uh, Muguruza was serving uh, down 5-4. She got into a little bit of trouble, then held, uh, and then broke Venus, and then held to win the set. You are correct there. Um, so, again... Um, it was very close. The first set was extremely close. Both players playing at a very high level. There were some amazing rallies, as you said, in that first set where both players literally were exhausting themselves in the rallies because they were both just absolutely crushing the ball. Um, I think that it was very deflating for Williams to lose that first set. I think herself, she knew that Muguruza was well-rested coming into that final and that, that she knew herself... Obviously, we don't. We've seen Venus play better and not have those instances where she looks completely exhausted. And I don't feel as though she looked exhausted in that final, uh, especially in that second set. I know it was a very tough, competitive first set. I don't think physically. I, I I do agree with you, Mike. I think that it was a mental thing that Venus. I don't want to say she cracked, but it was close, um, and that mentally she just lost her focus after that first game or that first set went by. Uh, and then she lost that first game in the second set, like you said. Um, I think that um, I think that it was just a little too much. I think that she realized that the hill to climb was extremely going to be extremely difficult. And I think after losing that first game, and then and then Muguru the held after that. I think it was just she knew herself at that point that, that physically she was not going to beat Muguruza, and. I know before the the podcast you and I talked about it, I, I had felt that after winning that first set, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of great champions where they'll relax. Uh, I know that, that, that Federer has talked many times about relaxing after winning a set. Um, and he's admitted himself that sometimes that's not a good thing, but in all intents and purposes, that's usually you start playing free. Uh, and I felt, in my opinion, that after Muguruza won that first set, 
And for the first time that I've really seen out of her, she looked super confident and relaxed. And that's something you don't normally see out of her because she is a player that can get tentative in the moment. And I did not see that at all in that second set. Um, did you kind of feel that way? Um, and what was your thoughts on you? You thought that, that Venus kind of uh, just just lost focus and, and wasn't there in that second set. Uh, was that kind of where you were going with that? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, yeah, I agree that Muguruza certainly played better um, in the second set. I think she, with that set under her belt, I think she was ready to pounce. Uh, and I think she was she was playing better. I think the early stages of the match, her forehand was very off. She was um, either overhitting it or hitting it into the net. And at some point in the latter portion of the first set, she started to figure that forehand out. And she was... Uh, she got the the, the level the level of topspin right. She was leaning into her forehand. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I, I did see that. And so that is what started to make her play better. Was actually her play at the tail end of the first set. So by the time she won that set and went into the second set, she was really starting to fire on all cylinders. I just think, you know, despite her better play, I think Venus was just mentally gone in the early stages of that second set. And, and once that happened, I think it was a combination. It was two players going in the opposite direction. You had Venus, who's just, you know, disgusted with herself for losing the first set the way she did, disgusted with herself for losing her uh, serve to start out, you know, the, the second set. And Muguruza doing a, <laughs> the opposite. She's ascending. She's over the moon having won the first set now she's super excited because she just broke Venus to serve and she knows she's playing well and so it's like two players that are just going in the opposite direction on the court and to me it just got worse and worse as the as the the set progressed I mean by the time it got to like 4-0 I knew it was going to be well I couldn't have said for a fact it was going to be a bagel but I thought there was a good chance it was going to be a bagel so yeah, I think that uh, Brad Gilbert would have said one-way traffic in that second set, uh, I think was the perfect way to sum it up. Sadly, uh, you and I and, and Eric always find that some of Brad Gilbert's analogies always fit perfectly into uh, certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, wonderful tournament on the women's side. Congratu- congratulations are, you know, even to Venus Williams in making the final. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, until... Until that that final had taken place, um, who was the only player at that point to be in two slam finals this year? At that point, it was Venus Williams uh, at that point. Now, obviously, Roger uh, Roger Federer made the final uh, on the women's uh, on the men's side, and we're going to get to that in a second. But uh, that was an interesting stat that of all players, Venus Williams was the one, on the women's side at least, that is the only player to make two slam finals out of the three this year. Interesting stat, wouldn't you think, Mike? That uh, the one of the oldest players on the on the women's uh, rankings that that she's playing that well and has made two finals already. Yeah, she's playing great. You know, obviously we didn't know we'd ever see this again. Uh, obviously, some they've they've done some something with her diet, with her managing her illness. I know they really struggled with that for years, and we would often yeah, see her yeah. getting. Uh, wiped off the court, no energy from her, could barely stay on court for 
at all. Some days I think it was a struggle just to walk out there. Uh, so obviously they found a way to manage her condition and her diet and her training in such a way that she's able to go out there and play like she used to, like she did, mm-hmm. you know, say six, seven years ago before she was diagnosed. So, um, you know, great. It's a great year for her no matter what from this point out, uh, you know, but I think she's playing so well right now. You can't count her out for, for the U.S. Open. So, Congrats, Definitely you know, congrats not. to Definitely her. Not. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, congratulations to Muguruza. Uh, an amazing tournament. Um, like I said, I saw something out of her in that final that I haven't seen. The ability for her to relax a little bit in the middle of a match, which I don't honestly feel like I've ever seen out of her, um, in that confidence factor. Um, and I think I'll, I'll sentiment what Eric said. I think that she can really take this and really become a factor and really push forward uh, with the possibility of, uh, of reaching number one and winning many more slams, I think that that's a definite possibility at this point. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, with, with Muguruza, I think we've got, uh, you know, a player who is obviously really ascending, and if, if she can continue to play as well as she's playing, then... I think her biggest thing is going to be doing this on a on a week to week basis, which I think is her it should be her big goal now. It's it shouldn't you know don't get me wrong. If you can just peak uh, four times a year and win the Grand Slams, then you know that's great. It's you know, I mean that's what people care about and and that's what people judge most players on. But I think any player of her caliber would want to uh, to be a complete player, and that means. Mm-hmm playing at this kind of level every week or at least most weeks and given the fact that she's won four titles in her career and two of them in slams is great but it also means in a way that it's kind of like a disproportionate amount of her titles are coming from slams and with her talent and everything she's got in her game she should be winning titles like masters 1000 titles you know miami indian wells you know other things that that are not grand slams so i think that should be her next big goal, obviously, other than winning Grand Slam titles. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we're on to the men's side, uh, starting with the fourth round uh, recap. Uh, Andy Murray handily beating Benoit Pair in straight sets. Uh, we had an amazing matchup between big, two big servers, Sam Query beating Kevin Anderson 6-3 in the fifth after Anderson winning the fourth set tiebreak 13-11. Um we had the upset, uh, and probably the biggest news, uh, non, uh, end of the tournament wise, Gilles Muller upsetting Rafa Nadal in a epic 15-13, uh, fifth set. Definitely on the men's side, I think we would have to agree, match the tournament on the men's side, as far as what we saw out of those two. Um, both of them having very high levels of play, especially for Nadal coming back from two sets down. Um, and I know you would want to throw in a few thoughts on that. Uh, I'll be very brief because I, you know, but, um, yeah. you know, this was a match and Nadal, uh, post match was, I think, annoyed with himself. He, he felt he, he was annoyed with himself for having given up those first two sets. Um, yeah. and, and being, being forced to, to come back in the first place. Uh, but Nadal had his chances. He has his chances early in that uh, fifth set to break Gilles Muller. He had his chances later in the set. Uh, there was one uh, point in particular where it was on Nadal's racket. It was a forehand, and he was very tentative, and it went into the net. Uh, had he made that shot, um, match is over. Uh, if not, if not, or no, 
maybe not matches over. He might have been, he might have had to serve it out possibly, but uh, yeah. But, but but your you sentiment know. is he gets the break and then he's he's got it. Yeah, from he's there, probably, probably got it. So you know <laughs> you know missed opportunities, uh, and I think what irritated him most was the knowledge that he felt like if he could have made it through this match, he could have done great things this in this tournament, meaning winning the tournament. So right. you know that's. Right. That's uh, obviously something he's going to be irritated about uh, for a while, and hopefully it'll propel him next year coming into Wimbledon. If he's healthy and he's playing well, uh, maybe we'll have another shot next year. But, you know, it is what it is. The match played out like it did, and as we always said, like we said earlier in, in this podcast, you know, you only have yourself to blame. You're the only player out there on the court with a racket in your hand. Uh, he right. didn't make. He didn't do what he needed to do in the moments that he should have done it, and it obviously if that happens. It means you lost. So yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, all credit to Mueller. He played super aggressive. Yeah, definitely. And 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 we know that 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 Mueller fits that mold of of the typical guys that Nadal can struggle with occasionally, and that's big servers. Um, Mueller obviously used his big serve to stay ahead uh, in that match uh, for for the most part, especially those first couple sets. He was really hitting the serve well, and we know the level he was playing coming into the tournament. So, uh, again, all credit to Muller, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, Nadal did have his opportunities, and um, again, I, that's why I say probably the shock of the tournament, although Muller was playing really well, um, we all said Nadal would make the final, and I do believe, as much as it pained me to say, we all picked Nadal to win the tournament before that match took place. Am I not correct? Yeah, we I all, we, we all, we all, we all, we all had them. Nadal winning yeah, we all uh, in them. the final. So yeah. this was as much a shock to us as it was to everybody else. Um, but uh, regardless, um, continuing on, Marin Cilic uh, beating Batista Agut in straight sets, uh, showing amazing form, serving amazingly well. Uh, then we had the the kind of semi-new guard against the real new guard, Raonic and Zverev, uh, in a match that I believed we, we all kind of thought Zverev was going to get through. Uh, but Raonic powered through in the fourth and fifth. Uh, I thought it was an impressive display from Raonic. Um, Federer, uh, in a match that I was very worried about, um, got through Dimitrov relatively easy, and I think you and I were very disappointed by Dimitrov's showing in that match. Um, I think as a whole, the three of us all thought yeah. that, that was a very it was, poor showing by it, Dimitrov yeah. in the match. Um but on the flip side, uh, an amazing display by Tomas Burdich beating uh, red-hot Dominic Team. Although Team is not maybe at home on the grass yet, he's shown that he's able to uh, at least move his game around enough to be competitive. Uh, but credit to Burdich, 6-3 in the fifth set in a match that um, that your brother picked. i got to give him that. Uh, he picked Burdich to beat Team. Uh, I don't remember if you did or not. Uh, but but credit to Eric on that. It was a good pick taking Burdich uh, over team in that match. Um, and then we had the the odd match: Djokovic and Manorino getting held over an extra day due to uh, due to um, I correct me if I'm wrong. It was rain, and and because they got backlogged, they didn't get to go on court early enough before curfew. I do believe is why that match was pushed over to the next day. Is that is that what you saw as well? Oh, the uh, Djokovic, the Djokovic match. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. They, they, well, they had to start too late, correct? Yeah, I guess you know the. There was a lot of there was a lot of topsy turvy of what was going the, on there. The Nadal Mueller match, I think the moment that went pushed to, it, it really pushed. The moment that the went to a fifth back. set, the Djokovic match should have been shifted over to another court, um, because it, it just should have been played. 
you know, they shouldn't have been, they shouldn't have been still guessing whether or not to play it towards the end of the Nadal Mueller match. They should have had them out on court the moment Nadal went and Mueller went to fifth, uh, fifth set. Djokovic and them should have been getting warmed up and ready to go out. It's a uh, failure, I think, on Wimbledon's part. I know there's other things involved, like security and getting fans in there, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's about the players getting out there and playing uh, the actual match and giving them the opportunity to play on even terms. You know, that way, Djokovic, had he won that match, would have had to go out and play the next day after that. You know, Correct. so that's Correct. not fair to him. And, you know, so that's, I think, the problem here is that, yeah, there are, there are other factors involved, but mostly to me, it came down to wanting Djokovic and them to play on the court in front of all those people and hoping that a Dahl Mueller match would get over quicker uh, rather than later. And unfortunately, it didn't. <laughs> when they finally ended the match, they realized it was just too late. And uh, they did a disservice, I think, to Djokovic. I, I agree. And, and the same to Manorino. I mean, that's not fair to him either. Um, irregardless, uh, Djokovic, heavy favorite for that match. But back-to-back days playing. Djokovic then goes out and plays Tomas Berdic the following day um, after after winning against Manorino. Um, comes out, uh, loses a tight tiebreak uh, that he didn't play very well. Loses a tight set, losing in a tiebreak that he didn't play all that well. Uh, Burdich gets up a break in the second. Djokovic pulls the cord uh, and, and calls it a day um, with the elbow injury that he's call, uh, calling. It could be, uh, you know, the fact of playing back-to-back days, but I, I have a sentiment that I think that Djokovic realizing that Burdich was playing well and already down a set and a break that, you know, it probably wasn't going to happen, uh, I think, at that point, uh, ill-regardless. Uh, but Burdich through, continuing his good form, uh, Federer, uh, I think that you and I both agree that, that he got lucky. I don't think Raonic played his best at all either. Um, same thing with, with Dimitrov, uh, from the round prior. I think Roger, uh, was lucky that Raonic did not play his best, especially the first two sets, although he did come around in the third. Uh, Federer winning in a tight tie break, uh, 7-4. Um, any, any thoughts on that one? No, not really. I mean... Okay, I mean, Rainich, I, I mean, I, I, Rainich it's the just same wasn't sentiment, playing you know. great, and yeah, he hasn't yeah. been playing great all year, to be honest with you. And uh, whereas last year he came in to Wimbledon, uh, super confident, super confident. He was not; he was the opposite kind of this year. Uh, I'm kind of surprised in a way he made it as far as he did, all things considered. Uh, but yeah. he went into yeah. this match without the belief that he had last year, and it showed. And that's why the results were what they were. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, another another impressive match that took place in the top half of the draw, uh, where we actually had two five setters. Um, similar characteristics though in the two. Uh, Marin Cilic winning six one in the fifth over Jills Muller. I think it was just a product that Muller ran out of gas in the fifth set after that very tough match with Nadal um, two days before, and then uh, Sam Query beating uh, Andy Murray coming from two sets to one down, winning six one six one in the fourth and fifth. Uh, I think you and I would both agree that 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 Murray's hip started being a factor late in that match, and I think Query powered through at the end, knowing that Murray was not playing at his best. Uh, is that is that what you saw as well? Yeah, and, and qu- credit to Query for not uh, like letting up, and like I said earlier, absolutely not letting the Murray's obvious condition throw him off his game and make him you know play at a lower level. 
uh, he just powered through and, you know, credit to him. Uh, unfortunately with Murray, it was an injury issue that we knew existed. Um, and it flared up as the tournament went along. I think, the, I think it got worse and worse and it just happened to really, really flare up at its worst late in this match. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then of course, query, um, who we, we both talked about, thought we had a, he had a great shot with Marin Cilic, excuse me, uh, Marin Cilic, uh, coming through seven, five in the fourth set, uh, query came out, played a very impressive first set, eking out a tie break over Cilic. Uh, and I think Cilic then at that point had the belief that he knew, uh, that he, he had the better game that day. Uh, and I think it was just a, a simple happening that query blinked. Uh, a couple too many times in that in in those final three sets, really, uh, and that's all that Chilich needed uh, as his serve just carried him through uh, for the most part in that match. Um, and then on the other side, um, take what is it thirty uh, Federer Burdich? Uh, they've played a ton. Uh, credit to Burdich though. I, I honestly think that although the score line was three three sets and Roger won in straight sets, I honestly think that Burdich. Uh, gave Federer by far his hardest match of the tournament. Um, uh, there was many times I watched a good bit of that match, and I honestly felt like Burdich was in the match. It never at any point was he out of it. Uh, did you see that as well? Yeah, I did. And, you know, Burdich... Uh... Short of winning, I think that was one of the best toe-to-toe matches that Burdich had did with Federer in a while. Well, yeah, he did that match. Um, he hit that match earlier this year in Miami where it was actually yeah, but a three I mean, setter yeah, yeah, and yeah. Burdich had a match point. But uh, I, I understand what you're saying. Considering how poorly overall Burdich has played this year, um, you know, I really He didn't, stepped up and didn't back down on the yeah, match. I didn't like, give him a really chance. He really gave it all. Yeah. And, we, and I didn't either. Um, I, don't, I, I know your, your brother had, um, I think, Federer and Burdich playing as well. Um, but I don't think that at that point he thought that Burdich was going to give him again. It was straight sets, but Burdich played him to the limit in all three sets. Uh, it was just a simple fact that, that we've seen the history between the two that in most circumstances, Roger just usually has a little bit too much for Burdich, um, in the, in those really clutch situations. And I think that's what it came down to in this matchup. Yeah. Um, but we'll get on here. Uh, the final, Marin Cilic, Roger Federer. Um, admittedly, last week I changed my draw, but my initial draw at the start of the tournament was Federer and Ber- uh, Cilic in the final. Um, I had Federer winning in four at the start of the tournament. Um, we had close to that, but not quite. Um, we had Federer winning in, in three pretty straightforward sets. Um, would you agree that this was a very odd match, Mike? Yeah, I think I think with with Chilich, a couple of things came into play. I think his last few matches were were pretty brutal. Um, they were, and, they were, they were very tough matches. And I think uh, well, he he suffered from a blister on his foot, which apparently yep. he had suffered in the the query match had had actually uh, risen up in the query match in the latter stages. Had been well, in, he had played a five setter prior to that, so that makes sense, right. you know. And then he went into the we went into the final with it being an issue, but they did as best they could to kind of mitigate, you know, the discomfort, the pain. Uh, unfortunately, when you have something like that and it limits your, your mobility for a guy who, while he's a good mover for a guy his size, 
you know, mobility is not, a is great not mover. strength, and, and you need that to be as close to a strength as possible in a match like this. So to have it actually be a weakness is is not a good thing. Um, and it became a more apparent weakness as the match went along. Obviously, that breakdown on the changeover at 3-0 in the second set. Obviously, at that point, you know, that that blister had broken open. It was extremely painful. Uh, he was literally crying. And, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate in a way because at full power with without that blister, I'm not saying that Chilich would have won. But I agree. But mentally, I agree. But mentally, I mean, physically, obviously, there's limitations. But mentally, he had to go into that match worrying that it was going to be an issue, knowing it was going to be issue, be an issue, and then it became an issue. It's kind of yeah. like, um, you know, in, in Agassi's autobiography when he was playing that, that final, uh, French Open final, and he was worried the whole time that his hairpiece was going to fall off, right? <laughs> It's kind of like that. Yes, yes. I, now, I, I know it's kind of a it's completely kind of, different that's, circumstance, but yes, I, I understand. So it's like it, you have it, something in the back of your head at all times, right? And it's not the match. What you're and, saying, and it's not the match, and it's not your strategy. It's my foot hurts. What if this? What if this gets even more painful? Oh, it's getting more painful. What if this breaks open? Oh, it broke open. My foot hurts even worse. It's like this. This. It's like having a pebble in your shoe and go out there and try to play a tennis match. And that thing is just digging into your it's, foot. It's getting worse every single worse. time you step. Exactly. So to me, um, that's. I mean, like I said, this isn't an excuse, right? I mean, Federer played great, and I'm not saying that Chilich would have won. I'm just saying it's unfortunate that Chilich was obviously in that kind of pain and discomfort because it made a match that Federer was likely to win anyway, most likely. And I could be wrong. Look, we've seen we've seen Chilich go toe to toe. You know, Federer barely beat him last year in five sets and it one wouldn't and so we know that Chilich has the game. And we know what he did at the US Open yeah. that year that he won. He absolutely destroyed Federer right. in straight sets. So we know in a match that, what he's that he of. totally had control yeah. of. Yeah, exactly. So we know he's capable of doing that. I'm not saying that because like if he'd gone out there and won, I'm not I wouldn't have been totally surprised. But No, I, no, I wouldn't have either. I was worried. I think that honestly for Roger. I think that uh you know, a match in which Roger was favored to win, it just became a I hate to say it, but almost like just give him the trophy. Because, it, you know, with that kind of foot issue, it, you know, some people might say, hey, look, it's a blister. Whoop-de-doo. Come on. It shouldn't hurt that bad. It shouldn't, you know. But when you're out there and you're relying on running around and stopping on a dime and slamming on the brakes and sprinting back the way you came, uh, trust me, having a blister on your foot really inhibits your ability to play well. And just unfortunate that it happened here. Look, Roger played great. He went out there. He didn't let it phase him. He well, played he, his game. He did what he needed to do. Yeah. Let, let's let's just honestly say that, um, in my opinions too. I mean, I I honestly at first thought that when Chilich slipped and fell on that point, uh, I'm I'm sure any of the fans that watched the match would know what I'm talking about specifically. Uh, Roger hit a real short drop shot, and Chilich charged in um, and, and made an amazing shot, uh, shallow cross court. Um, and he slipped and fell. My initial thought there was that the Chilich got hurt on the fall. Um, you know, after the match taking place and sitting and thinking about it, I'm wondering if that's when the blister tore. Yeah. Open when he slipped like that, because if you think about it, when you're sliding forward, all that pressure is on that foot. And I do believe he slipped on the left foot, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
But I believe that, you know, when he slipped and fell on that point, that's probably when that blister tore open. And I do believe um, that after that happened, Roger really took advantage at that point and, and kind of rolled away um, at that point. Um, but I agree with you. Um, I felt horrible. Uh, obviously, me being a Federer fan, I wanted Roger to win. But but the fact is, um, my wife was watching the match with me. And, and you know, she even said to me, and I, I thought so too, like, I felt horrible for Chilich. Although I want Roger to win, I wanted Roger to have to go out there and and really have to earn it. And I expected, I honestly had very big doubts that that Chilich wasn't going to lose. I actually thought Chilich, in my mind, was going to beat Roger. I honestly felt that way when the match took place. Um, and I when when the match took place, and I saw Chilich breaking down on the chair. Um, I felt so bad for him because. You know, I, I've t- we've talked about it before this year. This has been a season where we've seen players start showing more emotion. Um, I know the one podcast that we had, we, we talked about it, where seeing this emotion out of the players and seeing them give this kind of emotion is, is refreshing to the sport because it's really showing us how much these people want it. And and for the most part, like, we, we've, we've talked about the fact that you know, most of the players, you know, Federer and Nadal, they don't really show a lot of emotion. I mean, yeah, they'll they'll give a fist pump or, or they'll let out a yell here and there, but for the most part, these players don't really show that much emotion on the court for a ma- for a, a sport that's very physical and very one on one. So emotion is a big factor. Um, but but we don't see this side of players. We don't show them really showing how much they want it. And I think I uh, you know the sentiment of what you said with Chilich that I, I think the moment got to him. You know, he knew at that point the foot's pretty much, you know, gone. My movement's gone. Uh, I honestly think that it probably had an effect on his serve as well. Uh, I, I, I didn't see him really going for big serves. I think they pointed it out during the match several times. McEnroe, uh, John, John and Patrick did that, that, that Chilich was not going at full pace on his serve. That could have been a factor. The foot, obviously, uh, it being the left foot, he had to, you know, hit off of that foot. So every single time he served, he had to, you know, plant off of that foot. That obviously had to be a factor too. Um, and, and we saw that Chilich at times was going for shots earlier. Um, and, and that was obviously a sign as well because he had been very patient through the tournament. Like he, he wasn't just going for winners everywhere. He'd been patient. It was a combination of a lot of things. And I just, I felt horrible for Chilich that this was happening to him. Uh, I believe Roger had said in the press conference that, you know, he, he didn't know what was going on necessarily either. That he had he, he saw that the Chilich, you know, they were they were huddling on him, but he, he said himself, you know, he really wasn't hundred percent sure what was going on. Um But I mean we we've always talked about that it's um it's difficult for any player to see another player going through something because sometimes it's easy to let off and not stay on you know, stay on the gas and put the match away. Um but, uh, but but in the terms of things, I actually want to say credit to Chilich. Um, Rogers' level came down a little bit. I think you might agree, Mike, in the, in the third set. I don't know if it was just because he knew he was getting close to the finish line, but Chilich's level picked up a little in the third as well. Uh, I think at that point he knew that obviously he had to kind of go for it at that point, or or there was no point. Um, I don't know if you know the treatment that they gave him, you know, in the second set helped the foot at all. And maybe it allowed him to start playing a little more. 
uh, into the points, but uh, I credit Chilich for fighting hard to the end and making that third set at least competitive. Is is that what you felt as well? Well, look, he, yeah, I mean, I guess. I, I, I mean, admittedly, it, it was still pretty much a foregone conclusion at that point. Yeah. But but the thing was, you know, we saw that second set get away from Chilich fast, obviously, you know, with, with him breaking down on the chair. But the fact is, he could have completely went away in the third, too. Right, but he, you know, he... I mean, he's obviously... Enough, he's a good enough competitor and a strong enough champion and competitor that he's not going to just do Roger a disservice by, you know, just blanking in that, that final set. I think he's at least going to, you know, take some chances. And given that he knew he was probably going to lose at that point anyway, and given the state of his foot, uh, he just started, I think, playing free but in a way like where he knew the end was coming it just it happened to be just good enough that it allowed him to win a handful of games that's like that's all i can really offer there i, I mean it, it, i think it'd be almost foolish to try to analyze it more than just he no no but what i'm what i'm saying though is that at least at least at least he was putting forth a strong effort in the third mm-hmm. because like i said i i feel like that third set could have been very quick I honestly feel like Roger could have put that set away very fast, but I feel like that Chilich fought hard. Roger had two break chances on him in the third set. That was it. Um, and Chilich did win six out of seven at net. Now again, I like you said, we don't want to overanalyze it, but the fact was, I mean, he was he was putting forth the effort. Um, and, and, and in my opinion, I think he put forth as much, if not more, of an effort that he did in the first two sets. I mean, honestly, the first set. Um, he was, I think, a little tentative out of the gate, and he was making a little more errors. But I think, honestly, in that third set, he actually played his best of the match. You, you may not feel that way. Are you not feeling that way? But I, I thought he put forth a lot of effort in the third, and it, it was a great showing by a guy that was obviously struggling, in my opinion. Well, you know, it is ultimately the match. It was a weird match. It was an odd it just it was an odd final it was not the final anybody wanted to see it, it bared a lot of similarities with the Nadal uh, Warinko match at the Australian Open a few years ago when Nadal was clearly uh, injured his back and it had progressed and it got worse as as the match went along um you know he was probably a- similar to what we said with Murray this year right uh, with his match with query it just it was evident at that point and 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 again, you're right. It, it, it was that way with Chilich for the most part. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying I, I'm crediting Chilich that that was that was a great champion's effort in the third set to even keep it close. Yeah. Uh, in in my opinion, I, I just give a lot of credit to Chilich for that. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's it. So I think that wraps up our uh, recap and review of the uh, 2017 Wimbledon uh, tournament. So a great tournament all round. Uh, I think we can all agree that uh, in some ways it was as most people expected and in other ways it was unexpected. And uh, that's part of what makes these tournaments great is uh, you just never know until people go out and play these matches what's actually going to happen. And, uh, you know, on the men's side, we got Roger uh, winning his eighth Wimbledon title and his 18th overall slam. On the other side, we had... 19th. 19th, I'm sorry, 19th. 19th, sorry. We had Garbine Muguruza uh, winning her second slam overall, her first Wimbledon, obviously. Uh, Great for her. So, yeah, just a great tournament all around and all the doubles, mixed doubles and all that. They're just fantastic tennis really from top to bottom for the most part uh, across the board. And, uh, yeah, I've just had a great time 
just the grass season was it's always special we know why but uh you know every year we look forward to it because it is part of what makes tennis great so absolutely uh, yeah. mike and in a quick little note uh right before we finish up here um Looking to the future, uh, obviously tennis is always looking to the future. Uh, two American women in the final of the women's juniors, uh, Claire Liu, I believe is how you pronounce it, against uh, Ann Lee, uh, with Liu winning 6-2 in the third. Um, first time that an American woman has won the juniors crown since 1992. Continued signs for uh, American women's tennis to uh, to continue then. Yeah. Um, just, just wanted to throw that in there. That was uh, a surprising uh, result as well uh, in a tournament full of surprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But congrats to them. Uh, obviously, the future looks bright. So uh, good for American tennis. All right, everybody. That's it for us this week. Uh, as we said uh, before, the podcast uh, really got started. I, I did mention that next week we'll be taking off. Uh, just recharge our batteries, allow us to, a chance to kind of step away for a week and uh, come back ready to uh, pick it up again and get ready for the U.S. Open because it's coming. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like it comes quicker every year after Wimbledon. So uh, we'll be picking it up and uh, bringing up more wonderful topics to talk about, more wonderful uh, subjects. If you can think of anything yourself, if you want to send any feedback into the podcast, if you have anything you would like us to talk about, uh, feel free to do so. If you want to do that, send it in to your feedback. Send it in to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. It's all lowercase, all one word. And uh, put in the subject line whatever you, you're writing in about, whatever your, your email is uh, covering. And uh, also, if you'd like to go to iTunes, you can rate us there. It helps our profile and it allows us to kind of rise up in the uh, the rankings of uh, iTunes and it raises our profile so that we reach more and more people. So uh, I guess that's it. Uh, Mike, uh, great time talking tennis. Uh, thanks for coming on as always. Absolutely. And we look forward to the fast-paced hard court season. Yep. All right, guys. Have a good one. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>